Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me and Bill Arnold. I am so glad that uh, we've got a great hour coming up for you. If you are, have been confused about the, the climate change discussion, if you've wondered who uh, can you believe, what information should I should I learn, uh, how can I un- better understand this, uh, this is the hour for you. Gregory Wrightstone is a geologist and he's written a very interesting book. Uh, it's called An In convenient truth, what Al Gore doesn't want you to know. It's going to be a fascinating hour, and frankly, I can't wait for it to start. So let me take a very brief 60-second timeout, and we'll be right back with Gregory Wrightstone. Imagine a version of you that's more loving, kind, gentle, patient, and joyful. It's a version of you that God says can be possible. So this year, why not take the steps to get there? Intentional time invested with God. And with solid Bible teaching, Faith Radio could be a catalyst for that. The December 31st, 2020 you begins today. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Worshiping the Risen King together. Faith Radio. I'm very excited to be getting on the program Gregory Whitestone. He's a geologist with more than 35 years investigating the earth and the way it works. He received his undergraduate from Waynesburg University and his master's in geology from West Virginia University. He's written a book called Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Gregory, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on here. seems like there's something wild or crazy happening in the field of climate change uh, every week, and it, it's not slowing down at all, is it? No, it's not. And I think in 1995, Al Gore said that by 2005, Miami will be underwater due to global warming. Now, Miami is not underwater, and from what I have learned, there is some kind of football game being played, played there this Sunday. Well, maybe they may need to cancel that. I don't think they were aware that, 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 that Miami was in such dire straits. Uh, if they had only known they they need to be playing at inland somewhere in Iowa or Minnesota, that it would be safe from the rising seas. Well, let's. Uh, you do this wonderful job in your book, in, Inconvenient Facts, and you say let's let's arm yourself with the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, there's plenty of hysteria out there. Um, I did a little bit of research just to get ready for this, and and I'm sure I'm just going to let you do all the talking, because my research is not going to be as good as yours. 
But it is interesting um, how over the last 20 years, there has been zero warming. Yeah, yeah there's, if we look at the United States climate research or uh, research uh, data, it was established in 2003, and it's, it measures ground-based thermometer-based stations across the United States. There's 114 of them. It was a new, a new series of stations. It was in order they, they established this in order to get rid of what was called the urban heat island effect. In other words, there might have been a, a thermometer station in 1900 that was in the middle of a, of a cow pasture, but now it's the town's grown up around it and it's uh, sitting next to a, a bus depot exhaust fan or something. So they they created this, and that that data itself uh, is the most pristine, best data we have on anywhere for the United States. But it's only for the United States, and you're right about that. Actually, the temperatures, ground-based temperatures in the United States are I'm not going to say they're flat because they're not because they're going up and down, up and down, and up and down, and up and down. But they're ending up at the same spot we started uh, 19 years ago, mm-hmm. and or in 2003, 16 years ago. Now, if we look at the if we look at the the satellite data, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing for people. The satellite data tells a little bit of a, a different story in that they have seen some additional warming starting in 2015 and 16. Uh, after it had remained flat for a number, since 1998. So we get this dissonance between a couple sets of competing. Both of them are correct, and, and that's okay. Uh, I'm, gonna, I, I'm okay with a little bit of warming, as, as your listeners will find out uh, as we go through our, our exploration of the science here uh, in a little bit, because uh, I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of the many benefits of the modest warming that we've seen over the last several centuries and the increase in CO2. And and this is really where a Christian perspective comes into play. We're being told as Christians that the Pope and other uh, learned leaders of many of the denominations say that we need to embrace the Paris Climate Accord, the Green New Deal, and other, in other words, to, to, to save the population and save the earth and mitigate these terrible problems. Uh, but I look at it from a different perspective, and I, I just think they're wrong because a lot of the catastrophes that are predicted are based on failed long-term climate models that over-predict the warming that we're going to see. Uh, and so I'm a, I'm a big proponent. I'm a, I'm a senior fellow at the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which is a Christian group run by Calvin Beisner. And they believe, and I believe, that we should use all all of the Earth's resources, or in their words, God's creation, use all of God's creation for the betterment of mankind and do it as good stewards. And that's what we've actually been doing for the last century or more, is actually using Earth's resources to better mankind. And if we take a look at it, when I do in the book, and my second book coming up, I'm going to explore it more fully, is this earth and humanity that are prospering and thriving uh, by just about every metric we see as if we look in the rearview mirror of time and history if we look backwards by just about every metric you can pick uh, we see that uh, humanity and the earth's ecosystems are thriving and prospering uh, and that's that's a good thing where there's more food being produced year after year after year and again this this addition of food is Part it's it's advances in technology and farming practices, but also a strong part of this is this uh, modest warming we've seen, uh, 
and then we see CO2 fertilization effect from increasing CO2. In other words, plants grow bigger, faster, and stronger with more CO2. They use less water. So these are huge benefits that people just don't talk about. And and again, uh, from a Christian perspective, this is all a good thing because we want to be able to feed the hungry. Uh, we want to be able to lift uh, those in generational poverty uh, up out of that poverty. And we've done it, again, looking back 100 years or more, we've done it using low-cost, abundant, reliable energy sources. And that's what, if we go to India, I like to use India as a great example. Prime Minister Modi there, his goal is is one of providing low-cost, reliable, abundant energy to the people of India. Because half of his population, 600 million people there live in just horrific, terrible poverty. Uh, and that's what he wants to do, because he knows to get to get a vibrant economy, to lift his people up, uh, they need this reliable, low-cost energy. And he can't do it using wind and solar. Uh, I, I've been to India. I was there during the monsoon season. And wind and solar just don't work in India, because in the monsoon season, you're three months of wind and rain, um, almost constant. It did when I was there. Uh, you, you're not, it's not going to work. And he knows it. So there, India is doubling down with uh, opening more coal mines, more investment, uh, more investment build out of electrical, coal-fired electrical plants. And so he and President Xi in China both understand the same thing, as does President Trump here. The three of them get it. Angela Merkel in Germany doesn't get it. And what do they get? Again, I'm going to repeat it. A growing, vibrant economy needs low-cost, abundant, and reliable energy. And none of those three words can be applied to wind or solar. And so Donald Trump, for his credit, he's not actually actively working to promote build-outs of coal-fired plants, but he's protecting us and protecting the United States and its citizens from these harmful economic measures that, frankly, each one of the Democrat candidates wants to wants to impose on us. Uh, so uh, he gets it, President Xi gets it, uh, and Prime Minister Modi in India get it. It was just last month, actually, a great example is the, the new EPA administrator, uh, Mr. Briette, stood up and reported that the United States emissions of carbon dioxide had decreased by 14% over the last 10 years. And he was touting that as a good thing. Now, uh, again, I, if you look on the back of my SUV, I've got a big bumper sticker that says, I love CO2. And I, I was at the gym this morning and I wore my I love CO2 t-shirt. <laughs> so I'm a big, big, big proponent of the many benefits of CO2. But he, he proudly uh, told the United States and the public and the world of our reductions of CO2. But, and this is a big but, he said in the previous 45 days, for all the decreases of CO2 we did, in the previous 45 days, the country of China had increased its emissions in 45 days to equal what we had reduced over 10 years. Oh, my. So, yeah, and that's important. And, and if we look at – one of the things that's not talked very, very much is uh, is – what would a complete reduction of our from the United States CO2 emissions, what would that do to the Earth's temperature? And because perhaps I should state up front here that what I do believe about carbon dioxide and warming, uh, I, I believe that CO2 is increasing. The increase of CO2 in the atmosphere from 
about 280 parts per million to about 410 parts per million right now is due to mostly your burning of fossil fuels. So I believe that. And I believe that increase in CO2 has a warming effect on the atmosphere. I just don't think it's very great. I think it's great. It's modest and greatly overwhelmed by the same natural forces that have been driving temperatures up and down and up and down and up and down since the dawn of time. Those natural forces didn't suddenly cease in the middle of the 20th century, uh, like Greta Thunberg wants you to know. Uh, these, these forces have been act, in action since the dawn of time. And if we look at the warming trend that we're in, we will find that it, it actually started more than 300 years ago in the late 17th century, uh, long before uh, any, any increases in CO2 could have had any warming effect at all on the atmosphere. And so that warming, uh, again, it's in fits and starts. Uh, there are periods of cooling, periods of warming, but overall the trend has been an increasing temperature and it's been a hugely beneficial increase in temperature, lifting us up out of the death-dealing cold of the Little Ice Age, which was horrific. Half the population of Iceland perished during this time of cold. Uh, it's thought as much as a third of the population of the Earth perished during this time of, of extreme cold. The time of the Little Ice Age was in the 13th century. In the late 1200s, it started getting cold. A fascinating story, if I may. I would love, Gregory, for you to tell that story. Let me take a short break, and then when we come back, we will continue our conversation with uh, Gregory Wrightstone. His book is called Inconvenient Facts, the Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Gregory Redstone on the program. He has written a book called Inconvenient Facts, and he is a geologist with more than 35 years plus um, investigating the earth and the way it works. So right before we went to break, Gregory, we were talking about a story that you just got started, and maybe you can pick up where you left off. Yeah, one of the fascinating things that people like in the book were the relationship uh, between human history, going back the last several thousand years, uh, and its relationship with the temperature. And there's a strong correlation between the rise and fall of temperature and the rise and fall of civilizations. During each of the warming periods, the previous warming periods, great civilizations rose up, technology boomed, uh, food was plentiful. And isn't that just opposite of what we're being told? Mm -hmm. We're being told uh, we can't let it get a degree or two degrees warmer because we'll all die and there'll be famine. No, they won't be. We, we don't see that. If we look back through history, we see each of the warming periods warmer than what we are today. We're blessed with, with bountiful crops and food, and, and, and the Euro's ecosystems thrived. It was the intervening cold periods. Again, just opposite of what we're being told. The intervening cold periods were horrific. They were accompanied by famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. And what we were talking about was this little ice age, the most recent of these cold periods, as it started cooling in the 13th century, uh, the late 1200s, again, uh, famine and crop failure set in, and the people of the late Middle Ages in Europe blamed it on weather-causing witches, and they started killing witches, these supposed witches. And then the next century, in the 14th century, the Pope actually issued a papal bull stating that, yes, there are weather-causing witches, and if you find them, you need to kill them. And boy, they did. 
And it's fascinating that uh, during this period, and then I'm, I'm going to have a test for you here in just, just a moment. So around 1500, the temperature warmed up, crops came back, and food was plentiful once again. Well, why did that happen? Because it got warmer? They killed all the witches. Oh, they killed all the witches. Yeah, they oh. did a good job. They killed all the witches. Right, that's what they said. And so they were feeling pretty good about themselves. And that lasted for about 40 years. And then it really started getting cold. And that's when the really uh, big witch hunts took place. And there's uh, estimated thirty to 40,000 supposed witches killed. Most of them burned at the stake. Most of these were single women living on the edges of this, these medieval villages that were thought to be causing these problems. It was about a three or 350 year period of this pogrom against the witches. And it really didn't stop until the weather started, the temperature started recovering and warming and crops came back late 1600s, early 1700s. But again, it's an interesting story, is it not, that most people have never heard. I've never heard and, it. Yeah, and it's, but it's indicative, it's very telling, and it's applicable to what we're ta- talking about in that it's just opposite of what we're being told. We're being told, beware the heat. No, 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 no. Beware the cold. Cold is the horrific killer throughout human history. I don't want it to get cold again, because again, it, history will, will repeat itself. I mean, we'll, we'll be able to deal with it better because we've got, we're not moving food from uh, village to village on ox carts, uh, but I think maybe that's what AOC and her like want us to go back to. Uh, but uh, we'll be able to deal with it a little bit better, but it's still going to be bad when crops fail, and they will. So, Greg, in 2004, and I love kind of odd facts, the Department of Defense released a report assuring the world climate change would destroy all of us by the year 2020, which I think is this year. So that didn't mm-hmm. happen. And it seems that none of any prior predictions have come true. And then I was looking at uh, record temperatures, and the the highest one ever reported was 136 degrees Fahrenheit in Libya in 1922. And the record high for the U.S. was 134 degrees in Death Valley, California in 1913. Yeah, there were some heat waves during those time periods. It's hard to reconcile some of this stuff because that, the NASA and some of the keepers of these temperatures have actually uh, changed the data through time. Okay. Uh, but... Most scholars and most scientists agree that it's general. We've general, generally been warming for for 300 plus years, uh, at least over the last 150 years in fits and starts. And most people don't disagree. And, and this is where your listeners have to understand. When I say this, we often hear that 2015 or 2016 was the warmest year on record, or the last decade was the warmest year ever. Well, yeah, if ever only goes back to 1850, that's prob that is that's true because we're warming, right? So each as we're warming, the last 10 years should be higher than if your record only goes back to 1850. But these warming and cooling periods take place over a period of of many hundreds or. The last warming period uh, ended again in the 1200s, so that's what, 800, 750 years ago, and the peak of it was, was about 1,000 years ago. And we see that that time, the medieval warm period, was warmer than it is today. It, we have to look back through a much longer period. Mm-hmm. There's, there's too much of a focus on a short-term data, and by short-term, I'm talking about decades or 100 years versus thousands of years of, of temperature data. So when we hear about 
earthquakes and that could cause tsunamis and the fire in Australia and climate alarmists will yell saying, all right, you get the message now, give us all your money and we'll fix it. Right, right. I view my job, part of my job is exposing the, the climate myths. Uh, let's talk about one that was uh, that I that I exposed here a couple of months ago. The UN issued a report in November, I believe, of 2019, reporting that on this looming mass extinction of uh, they said there'll be as many as a million species going extinct over the next several decades. Well, to get that number of species going extinct, you'd have to have 25,000 to 30,000 species go extinct every year. My detector went off loudly when I read when I heard about this and I looked at the report. And so I went back and I went back to the base data they used. It's called the IUCN Red List data. If you want to learn anything about endangered species or extinct species, that's where you go is the red list. I went back and it turns out their chart looked pretty dramatic with escalating uh, extinctions, but they only used one data point per century going back to 1500 and it was on a cumulative basis. In other words, the year, the century before was added on uh, to the current century, and then the next century had those two added on. So it just looked like it was skyrocketing. And I went back and looked at it on a 10-year decadal basis to find that extinctions had actually peaked in the late 1800s, and we've been in significant decline ever since. Completely opposite of what this UN report said. And the, the key thing, remember I said, they said we're going to get a million extinctions. And they would need 25,000 to 30,000 extinctions per year uh, to get to that number. Well, I looked, you know, what's been for the last 40 years? Two. Two extinctions per year. Wow. Not 200, not 2002. And, and they don't dispute that. Oh, well, we're going to get to 30,000 pretty soon. No, we're not. No, we're not. And this, this report, it was just it was a, an abuse of the scientific process, an abuse of the data. They manipulated the data using statistics uh, to show something completely opposite of what the, the data was telling me, and it would tell you when you look at it, that we as humans are doing a really, really, really good job protecting our endangered species. There, there's less and fewer every year that are going extinct. And that's a good thing. It was, com again, completely opposite of what this report said. But they've been, it's been picked up on. If you listen to the, our, our little Swedish girl, she's not that little, she's 17, Greta Thunberg, she talks about mass extinction events all the time, referencing this report. It's false. And that's just one of these, these hoaxes uh, that we hear about. And we, we hear about, you talked about the Australian fires. We see the same thing. Uh, we'll talk about them, but they've been using fire now. Remember how all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came the Amazon fires, the Amazon, the lungs of the earth were, were being destroyed by fire. And this had never happened before. And then when we actually looked at the data, we found that, well, no, actually, it happens every year. And it's, it was a little bit more this year, but it was nothing out of the ordinary. And there were many years that were higher in the Amazon. And now we find the same thing with this, uh, with the Australian fires. Uh, what's interesting uh, for your listeners, they might a little bit of a history of Australia might be in order here. Yeah, can we uh, can we take a short break? Yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you so much. Gregory Wrightstone is my guest. His book is Inconvenient Facts. So we'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Thirty Sunday afternoons at two thirty on Faith Radio.
Welcome back to the show. Glad to be having uh, Gregory Wrightstone on the program. He's written a book called Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Um, all right. Tell me where we left off last. <laughs> well, we're talking about Australia. Of course, that's it. I, I think a good place to start would be a history of, of Australia. When the first Aborigines arrived in Australia, they brought with them fire, probably from in their dugout canoes from uh, land bridges when the sea level was low. Uh, they got pretty close or might even walked and brought the fire with them. And they completely transformed the continent of Australia from what, what many think was a a rainforest, or at least definitely heavily forested continent, uh, to what the Western settlers found when they arrived, which is mostly grasslands uh, with with some small patches of forest. Uh, there were there were forests, but the Australian, when the Aborigines arrived, they used fire early, often, and regularly, and completely wiped out large swaths of, of much of the continent. And they did it for a number of reasons. Uh, part part of it was to keep the fire danger down because a grass fire is low intensity and not as dangerous and they can control it. They used it for hunting where they would light, light it on fire and then wait for fleeing marsupials or lizards or whatever might come out of the fire. They used it for just uh, even going against other tribes where they would light a fire and that tribe would light a backfire to go back into it. Um, but again, fire was used quite often and regularly by the Aborigines. And when the first uh, Western explorers arrived uh, in 1642, Captain Abel Tasman arrived in Australia. Uh, Tasmania is named after him. And when he found there his logbooks and his journals, he noted that uh, nearly everywhere he landed, he saw evidence of recent fires or, or fires that were going on. There was always smoke on the horizon. Mm. And again, these were the aborigines using fire as a tool. Uh, they used it to invigorate uh, regrowth of grasslands. They used it again to knock out bush and brush and, and some of the trees uh, in order to, to spare the, the intense fires. And the, the Western, the English, when they arrived, uh, they continued this practice uh, in the 1800s, uh, late 1700s when they arrived, and to continue this practice of, of regular uh, wet season fires. They got away from this in Australia, just as we've done in the United States and California, uh, where we've increased, actually increased the fire danger, not from climate change, but from poor forest management practices. Uh, instead of thinning the t thinning timber, using grazing, mechanical thinning of the timber, uh, things like that, uh, to and prescribe burns, get away from that. Now you've got huge timber growing up, and that's what we found in Australia, uh, that they They've actually outlawed a clearing of brush in, in many cases in many areas in order, if you want to protect your home, it's actually illegal in a lot of areas to do that. Uh, for example, one of my editors of my book, Christa, Lord Christopher Monckton, he told me that he was in Australia several years ago, and one of the neighboring farms or ranches, uh, the fellow was fined the equivalent of 100000 U.S. dollars because he actually physically cleared the brush from, from around his his property and his in his buildings, and but the following year a fire came through and wiped out uh, several of his neighbors, but his property was spared because he had done the necessary work to cut back the fire danger. And, and I've got a couple posts on my website uh, right now. A colleague from Australia has uh, written some really interesting or articles about the use of fire in Australia, and 
he, he likes the idea of actually using fire. He calls it fighting fires with fire or use mild fires to prevent wildfires. Mm. Uh, so this is, I thought that I like that a lot. Uh, but again, there's, if you do that during the wet season, they're going to have to cut these forests and the bush back, or there's going to be more of these. This year is, is a big year, but it's not on, we're being told it's unprecedented. This has never happened again. That's the story we're getting. Well, I, I just went, I've got, I posted it out on my Facebook page and on LinkedIn. Uh, my chart that I got from, went back and looked at the area, acres burned uh, for Australia, the top 10. And this this season's, it's it's a big year, but there were four other years with more than double the acreage burn that we have this year. But we've never heard of that. The uh, we Some 46 million acres burned this year so far. But in 1974-75, there were almost 300 million acres burned. So that's what, six times uh, the area burned. And back in 1974 and 75, there were also big ones. A uh, big one in 1851, uh, 1968 and 69. Uh, these were these were big years. So it's nothing new to have these fires in Australia. But you wouldn't know that listening to the media. Listening to the media, you would think, well, number one, you and I have never really heard much at all about Australia fires before, have we? Never. 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 We didn't hear a word about Amazon fires, did we? No. Ever. Never. And why is that? And I think they relate to the game. They being the alarmists, uh, they they need to use every potential tragedy uh, to best scare the population. Uh, I open up my book up with a quote from H. L. Mencken, in which he states, to, to paraphrase, that governments and institutions need to create what he called hobgo- imaginary hobgoblins of alarm that they then use to to frighten the population into accepting otherwise onerous. Uh, rules and regulations. Uh, for example, the, you know, the Green New Deal, the Paris Climate Accord. Why in the world? Why in the world would the United States voluntarily accept something like the Paris Climate Accord that will hamstring our economy, be nothing but a mass transfer of wealth out of the Western nations and mainly the United States to the undeveloped nations of the world? Why would we do that? It, it doesn't make. The only reason we would do it is if if you actually believed that. We are on the edge of this climate apocalypse that we're causing, and the only way to prevent it is to reduce significantly our carbon dioxide emissions. Really? Really? Well, if, if, you, if you, I took a look and go on my website, which is inconvenientfacts.xyz, I've got what's called the Magic Simulator. Uh, when it's on my, actually my smartphone app is, is the, the working model of it. If the United States reduced 100% of its uh, carbon dioxide emissions right now, we would only avert four hundredths of a degree Fahrenheit by the year 2050. Four hundredths of a degree Fahrenheit. And remember earlier I had said that the Chinese had actually were outpacing all of our reductions, overwhelming us with their increases in carbon dioxide. So even if we reduced it, we'll have absolutely no impact on the Earth's temperature. And that's that, after all, is the goal of these people. They want to modify and reduce the Earth's temperature by uh, limiting our CO2 output. And it's it's just crazy. It doesn't make sense. Um, and here I went off on kind of a rant there. Where were we going with that? But uh, <laughs> No, I thought the rant was fascinating. So, no, you're welcome to keep ranting. Okay. There's a uh, – so it, it's 
you know, we we were talking about, you know, why I often get asked, why are they lying to us? And I, you know, I hesitate. It's almost like it has to be a global conspiracy of some type that there's so many people that are lying to us. They're lying to us about the fires. They're lying to us about extinctions. They're lying to us about the amount of temperature increase we're going to see. They're lying to us about the dangers in the future, and they don't want anybody to know about the many benefits uh, that I reveal in my book uh, of factor after factor uh, of improvement. They're saying, oh, X will occur if we keep doing this. Well, and we actually look at X, whatever it might be, fires, droughts, we find that it's actually getting better. Droughts are in decline, long-term decline, and forest fires in the northern hemisphere are also in, in decline, completely different from what we're being told. Uh, so you and every one of your listeners are just as qualified as I am to tell me why they're doing it. What I can do is arm your listeners with the facts, the science, and the data that says they are lying, and this is why. Here, here's what they're saying, and here's what the facts show. You know, here's their here are their predictions, and here's what's actually happening. And you find there's a great congruity between the two. And I, you don't hear many people exposing that. There are a few of us. Bjorn Lomberg from the University of Copenhagen. He looks at it on an economic model. Alex Epstein, who wrote the book uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, looks at it in a similar manner, but not from a, a science or historical perspective, but rather um, he looks at it from a sociological perspective of, of how the earth is, is thriving because of increasing in our use of, of fossil fuels, and that he, he advances the notion of a of uh, increasing fossil fuel use. And I'm okay with that. Again, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of, of more CO2. We, we see also the many benefits of temperature rise around the earth. Uh, one of the biggest things we look at when I talk about increasing benefits to ecosystems is a green, what's called the greening of the earth. Uh, according to NASA, and your listeners, if they don't believe me, go to NAT, go Google two keywords, NASA and greening, and see what NASA tells you. And you'll find it's amazing. According to NASA, up to 50% of the Earth is what they call greening. In other words, vegetation's increasing. Less than 4% of the Earth is what's called browning, or loss of vegetation. That's a really, really, really good trade-off between the two. I'll take that any day of the week. Too bad if you happen to be in that 4% area, but if if virtually the rest of the earth is improving and thriving, uh, that's a, and, and we see we see that improvement. It's probably starkest in, in some of the arid parts of the world. Uh, we see we see uh, the the area called the Sahel in the southern India uh, southern uh, Sahara. Uh, it's turned from a desert and arid conditions to uh, lush grasslands. People are moving back in there, raising crops once again where they haven't been any raised in hundreds or thousands of years. And this is this is again a good thing. We see it uh, this greening taking place in arid condition, arid areas of India, China, uh, Australia. Up until this this drought year was was a huge uh, greening part of the earth. Uh, and, and and there are two things driving a couple things driving this. There has been a slight increase in precipitation due to this warming, um, and that's that's helping increase soil moisture. Uh, a big thing is one of the many benefits, one of the benefits of increasing CO2 is that 
plants don't need as much water uh, to, to to perform and to to grow uh, because the the main the biggest water loss for plants is in the process of what's called transpiration. In other words, it's the breathing in and out of the plants. They're they're, they're breathing in. CO2 and exhaling oxygen, if you will, just in a simplistic manner. And with that, uh, when they, when we call it, it's not ex, but it's the transpiration process. It outgoes water vapor, so they suck it up through the root systems, and in the process of photosynthesis, they're expelling water vapor uh, because CO2 is increasing. They don't need to have as much transpiration, so they're not losing as much water, which means they don't need as much water, which means that Water's left in the ground, and mm. think of, that's that's what's thought to be one of the main reasons why f- droughts and fire are in decline. All right, yeah, Gregory, mm-hmm. let me take a little break. Uh, Gregory White, uh, Redstone is my guest. Inconvenient Facts is the name of his book, The Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. We'll take a break and be right back. the show. I'm so glad to be having this discussion with Gregory Wrightstone. He's written a book called Inconvenient Facts. I'm learning so much. I appreciate uh, all you're sharing with us, Greg. And when you start sharing this perspective with somebody and you start bringing these facts and this information, that's usually when the name calling starts. Uh, I have not found that to be the case. Okay. I find it on Facebook. I travel around. What I find is people are thirsty for this information. I, I travel around the country, just random people, person you're sitting next to in the airplane. Uh, you go to a restaurant, sit at the bar, get a hamburger. Uh, and you, the people, I strike up conversations, and everyone I talk to is fascinated. They want to learn more. And I think the average Joe and Jane on the street knows deep in their heart that they're being misled about this because everything they hear about the subject is horrific. And I think that there's a there's a great great questioning on the part of of not just Americans but around the world. Uh, you know, some of these these other countries aren't as strong. Uh, there's a strong strong skeptical movement in Australia, in the United Kingdom. In fact, my book I just signed a contract uh, two weeks ago to have my book translated into Norwegian. Uh, so we're going to go. We need to have it translated in, into Swedish next for Greta. But uh, Norwegian is a good start. The publisher approached me, and he's going to do three climate change books. Mine is one on science. Mine is science-driven. Uh, another book he's, he's thinking about publishing is, again, Bjorn Lomberg uh, deals with economics of, of climate change. And, and none, of us, none of us in the climate skeptic movement, uh, we hear about climate change deniers. Well, I've never met one, and I'm preparing to write a commentary. I write a couple commentaries a week about that. We hear about climate change deniers. Uh, I I know most of them and contacted them, and I've, I've sat on panels 
uh, with many. And not one of us is a climate change denier. We all admit that climate change is happening. Of course it is. We, we admit that there's, we're in a warming trend. Of course it is. We admit uh, I've, I've, everyone that I know that's skeptic agrees that CO2 has a warming effect. We just don't believe it's very modest. Some, some climate skeptics are, are well-known, people like Patrick Michaels. Uh, he actually believes that uh, more than 50% of the warming we've seen over the last 100 years is from increasing CO2. Uh, he's kind of an outlier, but he doesn't. He, he calls it he calls it lukewarming uh, because it's <laughs> it's it's not. Uh, he doesn't see anything catastrophic about it. He again sees uh, many benefits, like I do. Uh, and so these, you know, we hear all these claims of climate change denier. And I get called that all the time in print, uh, but again, not to my face. And that's again, it's it's, it's there's this thirst for knowledge about this, the inconvenient facts that people just have not heard. Uh, and, and that's why we rolled our uh, – we, we created a smartphone app. Uh, I had a gentleman uh, contacted me out of Boston, and uh, an app developer. He's a, he's, a Boston, he's a New England Patriots fan, so other than that, he's a pretty good guy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he, he kind of – we created this app. I provided the content. Uh, I rolled it out on the Glenn Beck Show. I went down to Dallas to the Mercury Studios, and Glenn loves it. And we're, we're approaching 50,000 downloads now of it, and it's a powerful tool so you can have a lot of this information in the palm of your hand, and this, the, these charts, factual information. And, and that way, if, you're, if your idiot nephew Billy tells you, uh, uh, well, Uncle, uh, uh, polar bears are going extinct, and you go, well, wait a minute, Billy, you can pull out your app, and go to fact number 52, and you go, well, look here, Billy. Uh, here's a chart of 60 years of polar bear population. Shows they're increasing, Billy. And, and he goes, oh. And so it, it's a powerful tool. Each one of these charts is accompanied by, you can click on it and go, what, what's the source data? Uh, that's, that's very important for everything like this. You've got to know what the source of it is so you can trust it. Uh, and then you can click on another link to take you. There's a little... A paragraph about about the particular chart, and a lot of these I've done original videos that are linked to each. Uh, so I've got a video uh, on the website and and on link to the app. Uh, for example, on the witch hunts of, of the late Middle Ages that we talked about in a previous show. So, uh, Greg, let's talk about stuff like um, you know the ninety seven percent consensus, and you know all the stuff that gets thrown out there. And when I heard, you know, Greta Thunberg's, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a rant or whatever it was, and she said entire uh, um, ecosystems are collapsing, and she throws out stuff like that, and I go, those those are pretty scary words. Yeah, well, she's, that, when she's referencing that complete, she's referencing that UN report on, on the mass extinction events, and it's just not happening, and we can look through uh, there's there's a lot of ways we can go about it to to uh, dispute that. Uh, if you dot X Y Z, go to the blog and you can find. I've got two commentaries on the extinctions. I've got uh, with charts that back up all this information. All of them fully sourced and referenced. Um, and but to go to this 97% consensus, uh, if you look at at the the original the origin of this. 
Uh, it really goes, most of them refer back to this a fellow by the uh, name of John Cook. He runs a site called Skeptical Science, which is a, a radical, radical, uh, skept- it's not skeptical science at all. It's a, it's an alarmist website that, that brooks no, you cannot deviate from the mantra of man-made catastrophic warming. Um, and he used some of his website volunteers that weren't even scientists, uh, 12 climate activists, to look over almost 12,000 peer-reviewed papers related uh, to climate change. Uh, and they, they reported that 97% of the papers uh, supported what they called the consensus opinion. Um, but if you look at the data, almost 8,000 of those 12,000 uh, took no position at all on the subject. So that knocks it right now right back to 33%, not 97%. Uh, and then if we look at, at the, the 97%, who they say were the consensus, he would include me as part of the 97% consensus. Anyone who believes that CO2 is warming the atmosphere even one little bit, he included as part of the 97% consensus. That's how he got to that. And and, and it, he actually went back and got looked at each one of the papers. There was a, a fellow... David Legates and again Christopher Monckton uh, wrote a paper debunking this, and they found that uh, of all the papers, only 64 of these 12,000 papers were actually marked as stating we were causing most of the warming. Well, that gets us down to less than one percent, not 97 percent. So, and again, I've got that. I've got a, a page on my website devoted to debunking this 97 percent uh, consensus mythology. Uh, and and if, you know, I'm a geologist, so when I talk, most geologists I know are believe as I do, because we we put things in the geologic perspective. We look at things in in thousands, millions of years, not in hundreds of years, and that's that's really what's needed uh, to look at what's going on today. And we also take a look at as geologists, we we look at what's happened in the past. Earth's been a great a laboratory of increasing CO2 and decreasing CO2 and increasing temperature and decreasing temperature. Uh, so we, we can use Earth as, as a laboratory throughout geologic history to see what's happened. And we find that there's really not been a very good correlation at all between CO2 and temperature. Sometimes it, it correlates high CO2 with high temperatures, other times high CO2 with ice house cold events, uh, and, and the opposite also occurred. And we also find, if we look over uh, the period of, of the ice ages we're going through, uh, we find that temperature actually changes first, and then CO2 follows it. In other words, it warms up, and warming oceans expel CO2. So it warms up, and then by a couple hundred years, CO2 starts increasing which is just opposite of what we're being told. Yeah. Greg, I'm so glad you like talking about this because I like listening about it. It is so helpful. And like you say, let's arm ourselves with the truth and uh, be ready for discussions with um, uh, people on this subject. So, oh, yeah. Well, uh, it, let's uh, let's do it again sometime. And we're. I, I want to – I feel it's my mission. I sometimes feel like an old-time evangelist spreading the good news of the gospel of warming and CO2. All right, I love it. And I've got the app on my phone, and I love that. So um, I'm going to tell all my listeners to uh, go ahead and get the app and also uh, the book, Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Gregory Wrightstone is the author. Uh, thank you so much, Greg, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you. 
That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Um, as you lay your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.